What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. And today I talked to a dope-ass FBI profiler, Mark Safrick. He worked and ran and did a lot in the BAU, the Behavioral Analyst... Wait, the BAU, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, which some of you may have seen on that show, Criminal Minds, which we talk about in this doc or in this episode. And um, it's, it's crazy, man, because we really dive deep into the mind of these serial killers who are infamous. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, BTK, Gary Ridgway, which you can find my episode of the King County Sheriff um, that I just did with King County Sheriff or former King County Sheriff Dave Reichert, who was the one of the people who caught Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. Anyways, Mark is an incredible, uh, fascinating, intelligent human being, and I was so glad to have him on. I love talking to feds, uh, but really these high-level um, behavioral guys and gals who are just like just in it, right? They've they've lived their whole career through this stuff, which is kind of terrifying because they really have to dive deep and become and think like these these uh, infamous killers, you know, act and, and their behavior to try to catch them, which is crazy. So this one is insane. I love it. Uh, Mark's a good guy. Like I said before, watch it all the way through. Don't not watch it. Also, if you would like this video, Please like it. Also share it if you want. Drop a comment below. But also hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time that I come out. Okay, I come out all the time. Every Friday, right? Took a little hiatus over the holidays, but I'm back. Every Friday you'll see me. So hit that bell notification so you get notified. Also, subscribe to the channel, guys. We just, two episodes ago, two or three episodes ago, we did Carol Baskin. Holler at your boy, Carol Baskin. That was awesome. Anyways, back to Mark. But yeah, subscribe to the channel. Like the video. Help me out, get the algorithm pumping, and, and really, really start sharing the stuff so YouTube puts it in front of more people. Anyway, enjoy this episode with Mark Safrick, former FBI agent and profiler for the feds. I'll see you next week. Peace out. This episode of the E4X podcast is brought to you by Bravo Concealment. Bravo Concealment is known for some of the best high quality and concealable holsters on the market. Located in the great state of Texas, they offer free shipping and unlimited lifetime warranty on all of their products and a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't like the product. I've been using Bravo Concealment for my gun holsters ever since I got into guns, and the quality is by far, bar none, the top notch in the entire industry that I've seen. And right now, they're doing a buy one, get one free, plus free shipping, the 30-day money-back guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. On top of that, you, my friends, will get 10% off of any product, of any purchase on their website by using Explicit10. Use the code Explicit10 and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase from bravoconcealment.com. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have former FBI profiler Mark Safrick. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Sure, Corey. Appreciate it. Thanks. Absolutely, man. Um, so tell my audience the viewers and the listeners and everybody who's paying attention like you know your background give me a little bit about your background and kind of your your experience and career if you could sure well so after i graduated college i had actually never even thought about going into law enforcement i was really going to go into medicine so hmm. law i mean this is by the time i had graduated college law enforcement had never come up on my radar um 
but I was interested in um, sort of keeping my hand in this medical field. And I ended up working um, as an EMT uh, paramedic on an ambulance in California. And that put me in touch with law enforcement, you know, going out on calls, shootings and stabbings and assaults. Um, and wherever I went, there was typically police. And I just became interested in the type of work that they did. And so I went on a citizen ride along program. Um, I, I was in at the University of California, Davis. Uh, at the time, I went on a ride along program with city police. And, you know, generally, you go for an eight hour shift. And you, you know, get to see how the cops operate. Um, and you go one time and that's it for most people. But I kept coming back and kept, kept coming back. It was crazy. I mean, like at about the 13th time I'd come back, the sergeant I was riding with said, hey, why don't you become a reserve police officer? So that's what I did. Put myself through the Sacramento County Sheriff's Reserve Academy, became a reserve officer, uh, I did that for like a year, started, you know, working as a two-man unit. And then after I got experience, I, I had a one-man unit. And it was really then when my career changed from medicine to law enforcement, I just became fascinated by law enforcement. So I applied to be an officer, um, got in, went to the police academy, you know, the same drill. You start in patrol, worked all three shifts, days, swings, bids. Um but I really wanted to do investigative work. So I, after about three and a half years, I applied to be one of the detectives uh, and started in property crimes, went into violent crime, homicide, sexual assaults. Absolutely love the work, love the investigative work, love the challenge of investigative work. And I know this sounds like, you know, I'm leading up to something, right? So, I mean, it's like, how did you become an FBI profiler? We're, we're, we're getting tired. But um, I went to this homicide school in 1982. Homicide and school? Were, yeah, homicide school. Well, I was working homicide. So okay. went to this uh, homicide school and um, there were two FBI profilers that came to give us two days of instruction. And that was the turning point for me. I was absolutely mesmerized by this way of looking at complex human violent behavior in a way that I had never had before. I was really, a, you know, managing cases in a homicide or, or a sexual assault case, managing the case, managing evidence, managing leads, but really never taking the opportunity or really the know-how to, how to step back and look at a case uh, forensically and behaviorally. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a couple of homicide. I had a double homicide and a single homicide, both unsolved, that um, were complex and I thought would be good cases to submit to the FBI's profiling unit. And that's what I did. As a detective, I submitted them um, through the local FBI office. And that's what put me in touch with the uh, profilers back at Quantico. And so that I developed a relationship with them. And after about a year, I really decided that's the kind of work I really wanted to do. And the only place I could do it was in the FBI. So I applied to become an agent and took about a year. Um, it's a long process, but I got in uh, and I you know, started off my career uh, working violent crimes on the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming. And then I went to New York City and then I went to Sacramento. And when I was in Sacramento, where I was working violent crimes, um, I 
and this is now in I'm 11 years into the FBI. Um, finally, the opportunity presents itself where I can apply um, to the behavioral unit because we hadn't had any openings before that. So um, I applied and got in. And that is where that is why I went into the FBI to do that kind of work. Um, and when I got into the unit, um, I basically stayed it till the end of my career. So I, I spent maybe 12 and a half years in the unit, 23 years in the FBI. Wow, damn. I know That's... it was any and I loved it. I loved every second of it. Um, but when I retired, I actually joined Bob Ressler, who was one of the, the big names in uh, profiling written the books, I joined him as, as his partner. Um, I'd done everything in the Bureau that I I thought I could do. I was doing research. I, I did research, a lot of research and publications in sexual homicide. Um, I taught all, all over the world. I worked cases all over the country and all over the world. Um, I'd worked the most interesting and complex cases as most of the agents in the unit had. So I really had done what I wanted to do. And it was when it was time to retire. I mean, I did, I'd been eligible for three years but I love the work so much. But then I got the opportunity to to join Bob Ressler, which I did, and um, and now uh, Bob got sick uh, fairly soon afterwards and was unable to continue the work. So I continued the business, and now I'm approaching 15 years um, with Forensic Behavioral Services International. So it's it's been a great journey. But I still love the work. I'm still publishing, doing research. Um, I'm still doing a lot of television work. I still do testify as an expert witness, uh, do um, complex cases, both criminal and civil cases. I still teach. I still travel. So, um, and I do podcasts. That's awesome. So you've been blessed with the, the career in the FBI. And then it's funny because yeah. every FBI agent I talk to literally tells me I loved every minute working for the Bureau. Um, and everything they got to do. So that's that doesn't surprise me. I do want to take it back to the transition from being a you know a beat a beat cop because uh, you know before you get into anything detective wise, you got to you know earn your street cred a little bit there. Um, sure. What was it? It's a side note about my myself. I I went to the police academy. I was looking to be a homicide detective, um, mm -hmm. and then I was like, wait, I have a problem with authority. Um, <laughs> uh, that's not going to work. And also that's I got to be work. a cop for like six or in the, in the precinct I was looking to, like they had like two homicide detectives and like, they were not going anywhere. So it would have been a long time unless if I moved around, but I, my thing was, I always had a knack for like, I, I felt like all the cops that I would talk to were like, I didn't like, I wanted to be a detective because like, I I came after the, the, the problem or, or during the crime, whatever. And then I had to hand it off. Like, see, that that's exactly, that's what, well, for me, when I was a beat cop, you know, and I was college educated. So back, you know, when I came into the, into the police force in mid seventies, a lot of cops, um, unlike today, where most have a four year degree, mm -hmm. a lot of cops only had high school educations, right. but I had a four year degree. And so I could write articulate reports, um, which made me competitive uh, after three and a half years for a detective slot. But like you, like when I was working patrol and I'd get a burglary case or I'd get an assault, 
I'd do the initial workout, but then I had to hand it off. Right. right? And then you're back to doing the, and I didn't want to hand it off anymore. I wanted to be the guy that got handed off too. Right. See you through. Yeah. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's kind of like the, the, what I got from a lot of the, the cops and stuff like that. And honestly, I didn't have the patience to wait like seven, 10 years to be a detective. So I went a different route and then I became a filmmaker and it's, it's paid off for sure. And then I love the, the decision I made, but I just always found that was kind of like, I always want to know the reason why cops wanted to be detectives. And I found myself like, well, I don't want to just stop and then go back to doing it and then stop and then go. I want to see it through, make sure these people, you know, yeah. solve it. You know, I, I think there, I mean, being a, a street cop is, is great and it takes a long time to get your street creds. And some guys really love that kind of work, yeah. you know, they love, and then they, they get into a sergeant or lieutenant's position or captain's position mm -hmm. in, in uh, patrol. And, you know, it's the type of work they love. And I like, I like street work. Um, you get, a, you know, you meet a lot of different people. Um, you really understand a lot about people when they tell the truth and when they're not telling the truth. So that becomes helpful when you become an investigator. But I just really wanted to, to take that next step. And that's kind of like when I was a detective and then you're working these complex homicide cases. Um, instead of handing it off to the bureau, profilers, I wanted to be one of the profilers that right. got handed off to these complex, unusual, um, difficult, violent crime cases. Because, you know, most agencies have good homicide investigators, the agencies I've worked with around the world, top notch homicide guys, but sometimes you have cases that are just um, beyond the pale in terms of behavioral dynamics. They're very complex. They're excessively violent. They have a lot of uh, dynamics happening within the crime. You have maybe have multiple victims or multiple offenders that, you know, is not in the purview of your average homicide guy. And they'll work the case, but at some point, you know, these cases go cold and that's oftentimes when we would get called in, or if it's, you know, if it's a high profile case, like a serial murder investigation or spree killing something where, you know, we might get called in much earlier. Right. Okay, good. That's perfect segue into what I wanted to chat about uh, next is serial killers. So I, I found you on, uh, I forget what the show's called, but it's on A&E. It's a documentary. It's fantastic. It just recently came out. It basically, which I never knew this, and I've been weirdly obsessed with serial killers my whole life not like you know i guess weird um but like i know a lot about them and it's weird when i talk to people and like tell them about the stuff they're like why do you know so much about this i'm like i don't know it's just interesting i'm a curious person yeah, so right. um it, i didn't know that not that they were doing it at the same exact time but the five most pretty much the most infamous serial killers ted bundy john wayne gacy btk uh gary ridgeway who is the green river killer and jeffrey dahmer were all somewhat operating around the same time within the same years, which I never even knew that. Um, so let's talk about that show a little bit, not even just the show, but like the, those cases, I don't want to dive too much into the cases. If anybody wants to Google all those people there, I mean, there's tons yeah, of stuff there's, made. There's lots <laughs> out there. Sure. There's no need to really go into those cases, but more of like the, like th those are the most prolific serial killers and in, in the seventies. Well, it's not, you know, they were prolific. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that this was sort of the golden age of serial yes. killers, um, in the early seventies. Um, and I think it was a culmination of a lot of things. And that's what the show invisible monsters really 
is is showing you and it's i think it's like when a and e put it out it was uh, three nights two hours each night um what we tried to do in that show because there's lots of shows about you know Dahmer and and uh, ridgeway and gacy bundy but what we tried to show was you know how did all of these guys why were they so active and why did it take us so long to catch them right as opposed to now and it's there's a whole number of reasons which become very interesting when you put them all together you know from the fact that we didn't have a 911 system we didn't have computers uh, we didn't have any databases like we do now we um, in the FBI, you know, we were searching fingerprints on paper cards, fingerprint cards, and we were rolling fingerprints, you know, police would roll fingerprints, they send the fingerprint card in the FBI, you know, we, we would then catalog that into a card file, we had millions and millions of these cards. So, you know, now you have the automated fingerprint identification system, you have APHIS, you have CODIS, which is the DNA database, you have uh, uh, DEA has their uh, drug database, uh, ATF, B BATF has uh, their uh, cartridge database. Um, we have NCIC, which we did not have. NCIC didn't start until um, in the late 1970s, early 80s. So we didn't really have a way to communicate with other law enforcement agencies. The FBI had a teletype machine. So we would send out a teletype really, you know, it, and it would go to the, you know, a lot, but it would go to a large office, like say LAPD. Well, of course, who's going to get the teletype, right? It's not a good way to communicate. Even when I came into the bureau, we, we didn't have cell phones. I, I was lucky I had a pager, right? So, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, so communication, no 911, no surveillance cameras, um, no computers, and sort of the culture at that time too, very permissive sort of culture. You know, if you think back to like Ed Kemper and, um, and Bundy, people used to hitchhike all over the country. Hey, when I was growing up, I lived in Southern California, I surfed and I used to hitchhike to high school every day. And I would hitchhike to the beach to go surfing. So you don't see people, rarely see people hitchhiking anymore. But women used to hitchhike all the time and they became prime victims. Right. Until you start realizing that you make yourself a target. Um, and then that gets, you know, that information gets out there. But it was a very permissive culture at that time. Um, and so you have all of these things coming together. And in terms of forensics, what what did we really know how to do? Mm -hmm. Even when I started as a cop, um, when I'd go to a crime scene, our cameras were film cameras. We had flash bulbs. So, you know, I remember my lieutenant telling me, um, hey, you know, film's expensive. So, you know, be judicious about the photographs you're taking at the crime scene. And I know, uh, like, I would get photos from LAPD. And so I worked Rodney Alcala case, the dating game killer case. Rodney Alcala recently died on death row in San Quentin. But um, I, I was getting these cases from Southern California. Now, this was maybe like not too long ago one because I was I was doing the, the Alcala case for the New York District Attorney's Office. Um, he was already a serial killer 
you know, in San Quentin, but I was getting these, these sexual homicide cases from LA. They have like 25 photos, right? It's amazing. You, 25 crime scene photos of a, of a sexual homicide. And you just go, so that's like now, nothing. now we have, you know, we do six, 700 pictures cause they're digital, but we didn't have that back then. We didn't have, um, you know, the ability to do the kind of forensics. We weren't doing DNA. I mean, DNA didn't even really come around until the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing blood groups, right? So um, fingerprints, you know, we weren't, you know, we, we weren't using cyanoacrylate or a, a vacuum metal deposition or, or any of the, the, the tools that we have now um, are, you know, the, the communication systems, as I mentioned, not very good, no databases. So when killers like Bundy, um, who operated across the country, um, there wasn't any communication between agencies. You know, you cross state lines, you cross county lines. How does one agency know that this case is related to another case? In fact, in Bundy's case, and we talk about it in the show, that was the very first time that a, a task force had been put together on a, a multi-state task force with investigators from Washington and Utah and Colorado and Oregon. Um, Florida. No, I, not that was Florida after. at the time because that that, yeah. Bundy got there later. But, um, you know, with, with the killings, it was the very first task force. And now task forces are very common you know, and, and the cold case investigations, but that there was just, all of this came together. And of course, you know, I mean, in terms of media coverage back then, what did we really have? We had this big three, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and the rest were on UHF channels, right? So we we didn't have 24 seven coverage. We had uh, daytime news. If your murder was covered, it might be covered locally, now you have a, you know, you have a spree killing in uh, uh, Nebraska. It's, it's instantaneous news everywhere, maybe internationally. Right. Um, so there was no media coverage of these cases. You know, so, so all of this was, all of this was gelling in the seventies and eighties and early nineties when these guys were active. And I don't think today with the technology and the investigative acumen, that we have that that these guys would be near as prolific. And here's another interesting fact. So, you know, if you're going to talk about serial murder, we didn't even define it until 1977. My partner, Bob Ressler, was the person that coined the term serial killer. So before that, we talked about uh, murders in series. We talked about, we oftentimes called them mass murders because they had a lot of victims. Um, but if you don't even have a way to define it, how do you know what you have? Right. Right. And this is 1977 before we even really define this term and start going out and teaching law enforcement agencies about, about this phenomenon. And then of course, in the mid seventies, early to mid seventies, the FBI um, behavioral sciences unit started um, going out and interview because they would get these cases from the National Academy. Um, the officers, uh, investigators from around the world would bring these complex cases to the FBI. A lot of them were serial murder cases, mass murders, spree murders, sexual homicides, 
unusual equivocal death cases. And they'd ask the behavioral sciences unit, hey, what do you think about this case? And a lot of times our response was, we're not, we don't really know. Right. You know, we decided, you know, we need to know, right? So we started to develop a research program and go out and interview these, these serial killers and ask them, like, how do you select your victims? What do you think about during the crimes? Why do you choose these weapons? How do you operate? What do you, you know, how do you feel? All of these kinds of questions, which we do now, there's lots of research, but there was no research into these people. So we didn't really understand serial killers in the mid seventies and early eighties. We were just getting our hand, hands on these guys and, and starting the research. So, you know, this is part of it as well. We didn't really, know about serial killers. We were, we were in the process of doing research. Um, and of course, all of that adds to the general knowledge um, that we have now, right. right? My research, others research their criminologists, uh, lots of um, universities and that have uh, criminology departments doing a lot of research in homicide, sexual assault, violence against women, violence against children, violence against the elderly, so, you know, what we had in the 70s, nothing really in the, right. in, even in the early 80s was really nothing compared to what we have today. And I think that's why these, these guys who really have names that everybody knows. Now, maybe in 20 years, people, you know, they'll go, who Ted Bundy, you know, like who's Ted Bundy, mm -hmm. right? But most people, if you talk about Gacy and Bundy and Ridgeway and Dahmer, um, they're going to know who these are. The, these people have, you know, name recognition because they had lots of victims or like Dahmer, they were so bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, or like BTK didn't have a lot of victims, but he just really heinous individual, brutal. So, you know, and then they went over long periods of time, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus years you know, before they're actually apprehended. But those guys operating today, that they just wouldn't have that kind of body count. I think we would be um, not only uh, from the science aspect, the, the, um, the forensic science aspect, uh, we would be on to these guys. But simply because we understand these types of killers, what motivates them. And, and uh, yeah, so... It's a, it's a great series because we tried to pull all five together um, and look at all these different aspects, you know, of science and culture and, you know, electronic communications, what we did have, what we didn't have. Because people, now people talk about serial killers like you're, like you are and saying, well, you know, how, how did Bundy get away with this for so long? How did Ridgeway, how, how did he have, you know, 60, 70 victims? You know, but you, you can't look at it through the lens of 2021 or 2022. Mm -hmm. You have to look at it through the lens of 1972. Right. right? What were we, where were we in law enforcement, in understanding, in research, in, in databases? When right. We had no, really no data. Nothing. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And that's, it's funny because a couple of things to unpack on that part is I, when I talked to Dave Reichert, who is the King County Sheriff, he was a homicide detective. He's the one that was kind of like leading the charge for the most part for um, Gary Ridgway at, uh, right. 
and and he he got the tail end of Bundy too because that was King County as well. Um, yep. So he was in in and it was astonishing when he was telling me the process of when he would go process a crime scene, and I just was like. What? I mean, like, just like you're saying, the fingerprints. I mean, hundreds of thousands of just boxes of just paperwork of things right. that they had to document. And if you didn't have the wherewithal and the like kind of like foresight then to like collect maybe that piece of evidence, maybe it'll be useful in 20 years, then there, there, there it goes. It's gone. It's crazy. Well, when you, I mean, if you think about it, when you have a big investigation like Bundy or Ridgeway, mm -hmm. And we don't have any computers. Everything is on paper, right? Right. So you have hundreds and hundreds of boxes of documents. And when you're asking the public for assistance and they're calling in tips, you have to, you have to investigate every single call. Yep. The thing is, I mean, a lot of them are crackpots, a lot of them, you know, they're, they're nothing, but the, the problem is if you, if you say, ah, this doesn't sound good, let's not investigate this. It may be the one clue right. that solves the case. Can you now it's not a problem. We have linkage analysis software. We can put all this stuff in. We have um, you know, computers, so everything can be scanned. You want to find a person's name, you know, in uh 1.5 million documents, you just ask, you just ask for it. Right find this name and it'll pull up every document. Can you imagine doing this with two right. boxes of paper? Files? No, <laughs> there's no way. So, to, so trying to manage leads in those cases, because you have to essentially prioritize uh, leads, you know, you get a, a lead in and then you have investigators who go, okay, is this a good lead? Should this be like one we do right now? Or can this be, can this wait a couple of weeks? Or is it a low priority lead, right? You got to prioritize leads because you're getting thousands of them, right? Yep. I have a bunch of holsters from Bravo and one of them is the inside the waistband holster. So this goes inside the waistband if you want to conceal carry. Also, swap it out here outside the waistband so this outside the waistband is actually like hella thin and you can see kind of like how how close to the body it can get you could take this on the range um you can probably conceal this and comfortably do it with you know a hoodie over top or whatever if you want to open carry um it's up to you they also send out mag pouches right so you can throw in an extra mag you're going to the range you don't have to unload and reload every single time you got a little uh little hollow point moment they come in handy if you're on the range like i said or if you can still carry and you're one of those people that are gotta have a lot of mags or whatever um you know whatever whatever your cup of tea is they also send you these really cool pamphlets they go into great details in these brochures of how to wear things properly, safety mechanisms, and all the features that all of these holsters have as well. So they really focus on educating their customers, which when it comes to guns, safety and education are number one. They don't have any left-handed holsters except for the Glock 19. I'm a lefty, but the right-handed holsters are so dope and they're so comfortable and concealable that I don't really give a shit. Just learn how to shoot with my right hand. And right now they're doing a buy one, get one free, plus free shipping the 30 day money back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. On top of that, you, my friends, will get 10% off 
of any product of any purchase on their website by using explicit 10. Use the code explicit 10 and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase from bravoconcealment.com. Problem with paper, it's still a problem even with a computer, but um, you know, computerizing it, but you know, it just takes manpower and, and hours of investigative work. Right. <laughs> Weeks, weeks, months of wow, work. Yeah, you're right. When he when he said that, because he, he it's funny. Uh, he was like, he told me he's like, you know, when we because he kind of left the Ridgeway case, and then when he became King County Sheriff, he brought it back and created another task force and built and bulked that up. And then they obviously called him like pretty soon after he started that. But he was saying like, we kind of knew like when we got the DNA and everything, and we got it approved and, and, and was confirmed. It was him. Like, he's like, when his partner sent him the, showed him the envelope and like opened the picture, he's like, he guessed who it was before. And same thing with somewhat of Gacy a little bit um, Ridgeway BTK basically caught himself with the whole fo the uh, floppy disk thing. He yeah. might still be out there. It's like crazy. Yeah. So, and even, so I worked uh, Robert, the Yates serial murder case, Spokane serial murder case, yep. same type of thing. You know, a lot of these guys, when they're operating in, in one geographic environment, so it's different than guys who travel right. from state to state, but like Bundy makes it more difficult. But when you're in one geographic area, the likelihood that you've contacted your suspect at some point is pretty high. Right, right. right. You, you can't filter them out. You don't have the wherewithal or means to filter him out of the conversation. But, you know, sometimes these guys' names keep cropping up, mm -hmm. right? Especially when you're dealing with prostitutes, right? Right. Because guys that troll for prostitutes, um, you know, they're out there and police can stop them and talk to them, mm -hmm. you know? And when you start talking to this, you know, your guy's gonna be the in that group, you know, if this is going over years at some point, you know, it's just figuring out who it is. Right? right. And the evidence to make, to confirm that that person was, that was the hardest part. Like you said, they had no technology and they had, they basically had to wait for technology to catch up with their investigation is kind of what he told me. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, so I filmed a TV series in Sweden. Um, I did two seasons of a cold case homicide show in the first season. We did this case of a young girl who'd been raped and murdered. Her name was Malin Lindstrom. And they had, the police had uh, on the zipper of her jeans, they had a couple of sperm cells. Um, but when they did this investigation, the technology wasn't there to do it. They, they knew it was the offender. Wow. Right? Because she was a young girl. She was found out in the woods. Um, they knew it was almost certainly the offender because of the location, but they realized that if they did the analysis um, and they couldn't get anything, they would have used the sample up. Mm -hmm. So they held this case for many years. I mean, um, like 10, 15 years, um, knowing that technology would catch up and we would, they would be able to, and just, um, maybe like, I think it's less than a year ago, they, they finally uh, did the analysis. So, you know, sometimes it's like, like uh, Dave was saying, you're waiting for technology to catch up. You've got, you've got the, you've got what you believe it, is yeah. good evidence. Yeah, right, I, right. You know, this is a, the offender's evidence. 
um, which you don't always know. You know, could, is it is it is it evidence that, like, you find fingerprints in a residence? Well, you know, I mean, it, could the person have just been in there uh, at some point? Right. Not during the homicide. So you have to find the, you know, the evidence has to be in a in a place where it suggests that it's part of the crime. Right. right? Exactly. Yes. But when you find it. And sometimes you go, ah, we don't, we can't analyze this yet. I mean, this is what we're doing with lots of DNA, old DNA cases. Now going back to cases that we've had 20, uh, 20, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. when we didn't have that ability and doing the, the uh, DNA and also, uh, you know, the genealogy, right? Oh, yes. Yes. So, so now, now you're being, you're, you can, and thanks to things like, you know, uh, DNA ancestry and 23 and me, you know, people, want to find out their ancestry, but those DNA samples oftentimes go into, you know, into a database, mm-hmm. right? And then you find people that are linked, you know, have some relationship to your suspect and you work it backwards. Yep. You know, it's, it's amazing, but it, it really is amazing. a gold state killer. The guy, the old man right. is just, yeah. Like that. My, my, a friend of mine, he's an economist, Anthony, Anthony Davies. He actually worked. He started, he was one of the person that started up Parabon which is the company that does that right. technology in Virginia. Yep. Um, and CC Moore, I think her name is, is the girl that has the, the TV show, the genealogist. And she worked it backwards. That stuff is freaking crazy. It's, it's amazing. I, you know, it's <laughs> weird, but I actually worked on that case. Oh, wow. When I, wa- when I was um, a police officer. And didn't even and, know it. And at the time, um, we were, we, this guy at the time he was called the East area rapist. So he had different names in, in different locations. So this was just outside Sacramento. Um, he hit twice in the area uh, where in my agency's area. And we were doing, I remember doing rooftop surveillances with night vision goggles because we were pretty sure he was parking out a long way out and running across fields to get to these houses. Um, and so we were covering these field locations with night vision. I must've worked five, six, seven different nights on the East area rapist. Cause we never caught him at that time, but um, you know, and then it turns out, you know, you know, many decades later we arrest him. Um, but he, he was, and I, and I did work on the case. Wow. That's as, crazy. As a, you know, spending cold nights on a rooftop watching through and night vision, <laughs> night vision goggles or, you know, binoculars we had. I mean, they weren't, they weren't great, but you definitely could see if someone was, you know, crossing. So I had a, I had a small part in that case. Very, That's awesome. very small. You know, I, I, it's funny when we talked about the evidence that is just, it's there like in the seventies and eighties. And like my, I always wondered, and I just forgot to ask Dave this too, but you, you probably know, like, like he gave me the example of when he was doing uh, Gary Ridgeway, he en- ended up taking one of the things that Gary choked one of the prostitutes with yes. that was getting covered by the river and kept it. And that, that was actually the piece that got Gary and confirmed it was him because it had the paint particles from his Kentworth job and they were able to match it. My thing is, Back then, there's really no training that people, these officers are getting to be like, hey, make sure when you go to the crime scene, get that sperm cell. Like, or is there? Is like, or do you have to be like a special individual to be like forward thinking enough? Well, I, I, clearly it's both. So when you're collecting evidence, and if you were collecting evidence in the 70s in the homicide case, 
you know, we didn't have DNA, so we're working with blood groups. But if you're forward thinking, you're, you're thinking like this rope is definitely this was the rope she strangled with. Now, uh, we can examine this rope, and we may not find anything. But in 20 years or mm -hmm. 30 years, you know, we may find something. So we may find those tiny paint right. particles, we may find DNA contact DNA. So this is what we look for. Oftentimes, when an offender grabs something, like they pull the victim's clothing off, and you know where they would pull it off, or they're strangling with mm -hmm. a rope, that where they're holding the item really tight, um, is a good location to find contact DNA, even on the victim themselves, if they're being strangled, you can find contact DNA on the skin. Now in the seventies, of course, couldn't do that. Right. But if you're forward thinking, you are collecting that evidence, all of the evidence, and you're preserving it. Now, I mean, how many cases were, was evidence destroyed or right. lost? You know, it just depends on the agency and how they were able to, to keep that the evidence. Um, whether was it secure or was it, you know, did they keep it from getting wet or mm -hmm. moldy? And, um, but it's very important because you have to, you have to look at these things and go, yeah, we can't get anything off this rope, but maybe in the future we should keep this. And then we'll, Crazy. you know, in 20 years or 10 years, we'll go back and see, but you'd have to be forward thinking, uh, yeah. you know, to, to, to look at that from that perspective. That's fascinating to me. I just think that's so, cause you think it's like, Oh, this is it. This is what we got right now. You don't really think of like, Hey, in 20 years, we might be able to use genealogy technology and find out this. We didn't know. even know we didn't, well, we didn't, we, we didn't know about DNA. So we didn't really right. know about genealogy, right. but you know, you're looking at this rope and going, Oh, we can't get anything off. This is okay. just, it's clear to the rope he strangled her with, but you know, there's nothing on it. We've looked at it under, you know, a microscope, um, in the lab, but there's nothing on it. Well, yeah, there's something there. You just can't see it now, wow. right? Or you can't collect it now. But if you preserve it, you know, not only preserve it in terms of uh, for time, you know, so that it it stays intact, um, but you preserve it legally, right? So you don't lose chain of custody on these things. Um, you know, this is what we're doing now. We're, we're bringing a lot of these cases back. You read it almost every day in the news. Somebody solved a 35-year-old murder case, you know, or or it doesn't even have to be a, um, a crime. It could be identifying a missing person, yep, right? Yep, yep, yep. You know, we've had this missing person for 45 years. We finally we finally identified him through uh, uh, genetic genealogy. Right. It's so right? crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it can be it can be a lot of things, right? Really, that's, that's fascinating. And the, the, I mean, you already answered my one question I was going to ask, is it hard? Would it be hard to be a serial killer nowadays? Because I, I don't see really anybody that's like, has a body count of like more than 10, like ever, like, let alone 50, 60, 40, 30. I mean, to, but you answered all that already. I mean, that's, that is, I think it's obvious. I think it depends. Well, it depends, you know, well, the country that this is happening in, True. right. The, the, the uh, I was called in a case down in um, uh, Brazil, and you know, so uh, law enforcement down there. Uh, if you're in a big city, yeah, it can be good, but if you're not, 
you know, uh, are you, do you have the ability or you, do your labs or do they have that standard? Right. Are your investigators, do they know about how to do these kinds of investigation? That was one of the reasons that, hmm. that I got called on it. Um, so it just depends on, on where it is. And also, you know, uh, serial killers, murderers, they watch the news, they watch shows, they understand that, um, you know, if you're half smart, that what police can do with evidence. I remember getting a case as I, I did research in sexual homicides of elderly females. So I would get a lot of these cases. And I, I got this case once uh, where uh, the, the woman had been sexually assaulted and murdered, right? This elderly woman, she's about 87 years old, but the offender had cut all of her fingernails off all the way down to the quick, all of all 10 of them is almost, you know, you, and you know what he's doing because you know that at some point she probably tried to scratch him or ah. did scratch him. Right. And he recognized that there's going to be DNA under the fingernails. And wow. so he's not going to let the police collect that. So he actually trimmed all of her fingernails. Now, when she was dead, when he did this, but he cut them all the way down, you know, into the skin line just to, and then took them with him. So, uh, yes. So sometimes you do have individuals who are thinking ahead um, and, you know, making some effort to either take evidence with them or destroy evidence. But, but um, you know, we're pretty good, you know, in, yeah. in this day and age that, you know, they may miss something. They're, they're not, you know, always um, the brightest individuals. And even if they are bright, there's always something that they miss. They yeah. can't think of everything. So um, I, I think, you know, what you said and what I said earlier is to, we just don't have these kinds of long-term killers, you yeah. know, 10, 20 years with, you know, um, body counts in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, just because we're, we're much better in this country anyway. Um, so it just depends on where you're doing that investigation. Right. That makes sense. Cause some, some countries might, might be stuck back in the eighties and seventies technology wise to oh, even further back than that, you know? Right. And, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up the coining of serial killer, which brings me to my next question, which is a show that I love mine hunter. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, yeah. So that show kind of, I thought, I don't know, listen, I don't, not FBI agent. I don't really know anything about that kind of stuff, but it seemed very legit. And the serial killers that were in it were like spot on. <laughs> yeah. They, they did do a good job of that, uh, of, you know, getting people that were very similar to the, yeah, they eerie, like eerily me. similar. Yeah. Um, it, that was, yeah, crazy. it's, I think they made a, you know, a very good attempt to, um, sort of replicate what the FBI was doing initially in its right. serial killer research. Um, I mean, and this is just personally for me, uh, because in the show, um, the two uh, main characters um, are essentially supposed to be John Douglas and Bob Ressler. Yep. But in the show, they have the younger character as taking the lead in this. And, and that would be Douglas and the older character, more seasoned agent, uh, wrestler, sort of either laying back or not expressing that much interest. Um, actually, 
the roles are flipped. Hmm. Wrestler was the one that started this research, was the one that wanted to go out and do the interviews and asked Douglas if he, who was a junior agent, you know, was in the, in the unit, if he wanted to go with him. Wow. So wrestler was actually the one that, that was pushing the research, pushing to do the um, interviews. So the show is incorrect in how they, how the two characters, but that's just something for me, because I know, yeah, right. You, and you Bob was my partner. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, most people, almost everybody, they just enjoy the show. Right. And mm -hmm. it's a good show. And I think they tried to keep it true in terms of, you know, where we were, this was at the beginning when we were, you know, we, we wanted to understand these kinds of killers and what motivated them mm -hmm. and how they thought about the killing and how they selected their victims. How do you do that? Well, you have to go out and talk to them, right? Right. You go interview them and you ask them these questions. You develop, you develop a research protocol and then you go and talk to them. And it, it, it was great back then because they go on a road trip school where they're teaching law enforcement, you know, a bunch of homicide guys, give them a school and they go like, Hey, let's, uh, let's go interview Charlie. He's over yeah. in Vacaville, <laughs> you know, and they would just stop by Vacaville prison and go, Hey, warden, you know, FBI, we're from the behavioral science unit. Can we interview uh, Charlie? We'd be like, yeah, let me see if he wants to chat with you. <laughs> And those were the good old days. You can't do that anymore because now you have uh, interview research boards. There is no wow. way that you can just stop by a prison uh, if you're like a researcher or you know, FBI agents researcher. Um, and, and I knew this from my research I did later on. You know, you have these institutional review boards, and they are a beast to get through. And you have to; these guys have to sign all these kinds of waivers. You have to sign waivers that they could be, you know, uh, mentally affected by talking about their crimes. You know, I mean, it's wow the amount of paperwork that you you, you just can't stop by. But that's how we did it, right? sort of, we didn't, we never asked for permission, even from the FBI, they weren't asking for permission. They just were like, Hey, we're at this road school. Let's go talk to Kemper. Let's go talk to Manson. Let's go talk to son of Sam. Oh you know, let's God. see what they have to say. We, we learned a lot, but um, you know, the old saying better to uh, beg for forgiveness than, than ask, ask for, for permission, permission. That's... which is what we did. And you know, the, the, the guys got in trouble for that because the bureau didn't really know what they were doing. But they got the information and they published it and that spurred more research. I mean, it certainly spurred my research. Mm -hmm. um, I remember going to uh, Roy Hazelwood, who's one of the, another one of the giants in the unit. And I, I wanted to do some research as well. And I asked Roy, like, you know, what, what should I do research in, you know? And he goes, find a niche that nobody has explored yet and become an expert in that. And that's what I did. Uh, I, I ended up, uh, when I first got into the unit, getting assigned a couple of these um, uh, sexual homicides of elderly women out of Colorado Springs. There was like an 87-year-old woman and a 92-year-old woman. That's where I'm at. Viciously raped and brutally murdered. Jeez. And, you know, you ask yourself, 
what kind of person does this? I'm just about to say that. Who does that too? Right. Who does yeah. that? And that is the question detectives who get these kinds of cases now ask because they're used to dealing with homicide cases, but this is a different type of case. Yes. And I asked myself the same question. So when I ask the question in when I'm trying to do research, the first thing I want to do is find out who's done research in this and read the research. The thing was, there'd been no research in this area. Right. Um, there had been research looking at um, sexual assault of elderly women. Uh, some lived, some died. Um, but I was interested in just sexual homicide. And there had been no research in that. So I found my niche and I exploited it. I started research in 1996. I have published many papers on this. Um, I published book chapters. I have um, I developed a homicide injury scale. Wow. that I've published on based on this data set. Uh, I developed a strangulation study based on this data set. Uh, and so now we have a lot of research in this particular area of sexual homicide. Is it a big area? No, it's not. Do you see that a lot around the country? No, you don't. But when you get those cases, mm -hmm. which detectives, when they get those cases, they'd be like, what is going on here right and i remember uh out of detroit michigan um because i published a paper with him uh i think his name escapes me at the moment but i he was a seasoned homicide guy he'd, he'd investigated like 500 homicide cases and he got this 93 year old woman who'd been raped and murdered and uh left nude on her bed with a knife sticking in her chest um, and she'd been stabbed uh, in the sexual areas. And I mean, it was brutal. Wow. And when he got this case, like he, he had seen homicide cases, so many, but he said he walked into that crime scene and he was like, what the hell is yep. going on here? He goes, I have no idea who would do something like where this. do you begin? <laughs> right. Well, you know, so you can be a seasoned homicide guy. You get a case like that and you're like, huh. And, and that's, he ended up talking to a homicide detective friend of his, and that guy had happened to go to a conference where I had been speaking about this, wow. I've been lecturing about my research. And he said, hey, you know, uh, Dave, you want to call this agent at the behavioral analysis unit. He's been doing research in this area. And he called me on the phone and I hadn't seen any photographs. I hadn't seen anything. We just talked on the phone. And he mm -hmm. told me about his case. He had, they had like 50 potential suspects. And I said, okay, based on the research, this is what you're looking for. This is what your guy's going to look like. This is about his age. This is going to be his race that I, that I went down the line. And he said, you know what? I got a guy like that. And it turns out it was the guy. Now, I mean, it's, it's not that easy in every case. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. It's summer and so, but the thing is that the research told us some things about it. And after the, that case was solved and, and he was um, arrested and prosecuted, Dave and I got together and we wrote an article about the, the merging of behavioral science, police investigations, and the forensic science, how the lab and the police investigators and the behavioral people all came together to solve this case, mm -hmm. right? And it's a, it's a, it's a really great marriage of you know, what we do, because, you know, what I tell people is look, law enforcement has lots of tools in their toolbox, forensic science and, and all kinds of things from fingerprints to shoe prints. And I mean, 
hairs and fibers. Um, behavioral analysis is one tool in the toolbox. It is not meant to solve your case, but it is meant to give you useful information that can move your investigation forward or narrow a pool of potential suspects, which is what I, which is what I did with Dave. Right. Well, you know, we narrowed a potential pool of about 50 guys down to like two or three. And, and this, and he was in that group. Um, so, you know, people think that profiling is we're there to solve the case. We're not, we, we want the case to be solved, but we're there to provide a specific tool in complex homicide cases, typically cold cases where you've run out of leads in the case and you're getting a fresh eyes look at it from a behavioral perspective, because this is, these are the kinds of cases that I look at day in and day out. I've looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of these cases, not your run of the mill homicide mm -hmm. cases, but this weird complex behavior. And then when I see that kind of behavior in another crime scene, I understand what that dynamic is mm -hmm. based on my training, my experience, my education. Right. And then I offer that, you know, to law enforcement because we don't typically come in to a case until either it's well into its investigation or, you know, police are going, you know, it's cold. You know, how do we move this case forward? I don't know. Let, how about having the profilers, FBI profilers, take a look at it? Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe they can. And, and it's fresh eyes. We can. We can. Yeah. Yeah. It's fresh eyes, but it's also fresh eyes from a different perspective, right, right, right? Yeah, from a yeah. behavior. And, and the advantage is that, you know, we don't, I don't have a dog in the fight, right? I don't have True. a relationship with the victims or their families or suspects or their families. I'm not in the community. I'm not tied into this whole thing, potentially emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm going to stand back and look at this objectively um, and tell them what I think, you know, for me is going on here. Right. And then, you know, they, they can take that information and um, move it forward or, you know, they can ignore it, which a number of agencies do. Right. Yeah. And so it isn't, it isn't meant to solve the case. And I think a lot of people, you know, get that wrong about profiling. Um, it's a tool. It's a, it's a, it's a very useful tool, but not in all cases. So most homicide cases do not are not good cases for uh, profiling. Just because it's a homicide doesn't mean it's a good case. There has to be some significant psychopathology within the case. Um, so something for us to look at, something, some dynamic interaction. Right. So drive-by shooting. I was just about to say drive-by. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. even a, you know a lot of prostitute homicides just are not going to have that kind of rich uh, background mm -hmm. um, that you need in, in these cases. Serial murder cases typically have it, but you collect it from lots of different cases. Even if you're talking about prostitute cases, you know, if you've got a lot of cases, you can glean pieces from all of them, but um, it, it just takes a certain kind of case. And I've turned down countless cases when agencies have called me I'm like, I don't think I can help you with this. There right. just isn't, isn't enough there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you with the whole like kind of idea of like a, a profiler, like it's the end all be all. Well, no, it's just a tool because I think a lot of like 
I think of Criminal Minds, right? They like blew it up. Like they're always solving the case. And obviously that's right. a TV show and it's exaggerated, but yeah, they were like, I didn't even know what that was until I saw that show. And I'm like, oh, these guys are like the saving grace. They come in, they solve the case. And well, and they're doing everything. That's so, so yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's the other thing is that, you know, we, we have a really specific job and we don't, you know, it, it isn't six or seven people going out on a case. Our unit was small. We only had eight profilers in the adult crimes unit. So I was in adult crimes. So we did all the adult homicides around the country uh, and around the world. So when you only have eight people, you're not sending, you know, you can't send five and six people on a case. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can send two on a serial. I've never gone with more than one other person wow. on a case. Um, we don't fly in a G5 jet um, that's owned by the, the Bureau. The Bureau does own a G5, but the only person that flies in that is the director. Um, and it isn't the FBI profilers. We fly commercial. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not experts in DNA or all these other, uh, you know, things that they do. Mm -hmm. um, we have an expertise in a particular area. And, uh, you know, we don't do, and we don't do the investigation. That's the other thing. So these guys, you know, in the show, they're going out and doing all this stuff, but we don't do that. You know, it's not, it's not our case. We're been, we've been invited in to mm -hmm. assist on the case. We come in, we assist as best as we can, and then we leave. Right. And if, if we rec make recommendations about doing something investigatively, it's them because it can't be us because they have to testify about it. It's their case. Right. If we start doing things, then, you know, then we would have to come in, testify about what we did. So these are the recommendations we make. So the show is mostly entertaining, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of reality, um, not, not so not accurate. Right. Yeah. So I'll, I know we got like, like a couple more minutes. I have one, one question is how does one, because we talked about this on the phone, how, how do you get into, because you have to become the, like, kind of think like a serial killer. You have to like understand their behavior, why they're doing certain things. Is there an MO? They keep doing the same thing. Is it a typical kind of like run of the mill serial killer? Cause I've always seen, all the serial killers have what in common? They have mother issues and they kill animals, right? That's like the stereotypical. Well, that's not true, but I know. Yeah. Right. But that's like, I think like the stereotypical thing of people think that like, Oh, well they, that's like a profiling thing, but can you kind well, of explain that, yeah, that's sort of the homicidal triad that, right. that was, has been debunked, but you know, it was like bedwetting fire setting yes. and animal, animal torture. Right. And yes, you do see that in uh, serial killers or you see certain aspects of it. Um, but you know, the other, on the, on the flip side is you see those things and lots of other kids too, right. right. They don't become serial killers, right. Just like school shooters there. When we did the school shooting assessment, um, the FBI published a, a school shooter, um, sort of a monograph, you know, we found a lot of hallmark areas in these kids in the school shooters, but we always cautioned like, you can't use that as a checklist and go, oh yeah, I've got a kid in my class and he checks off mm. all these boxes. He must be a school shooter or a potential school shooter because there's lots of kids that have those that never become school shooters. Right. Right. So just because they have it and we've, we've sort of debunked that homicidal triad um, thing, but yes. And, you know, I think the media propagated a lot of that, you know, yes. white males 
in their mid twenties who hate their mothers, right? Is, is sort of, that's the serial killer, but literally uh, you, you have Hispanic serial killers and black serial killers and, um, you know, and um, Asian serial killers. You just, in every culture, you have serial killers, um, right. right? So, you know, this country is 86% Caucasian. So yes, you're going to have more Caucasian serial killers just simply based on population dynamics. Right. Right. So, you know, uh, I think the question you're asking really has to do with um, being able to uh, dissociate yourself from emotionally from the material that you're looking at. Right. Hmm. And, you know, I've had training in lots of areas for from forensic blood stain analysis to forensic pathology. I used to teach for the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in their basic forensic pathology course in, in um and psychopathy. So, so you have a expertise in a lot of areas that you can bring to bear when you get these cases. Could be forensic entomology, right? And you have a, a buried body case, so you have a lot of insects. You need that expertise or forensic botany. Wow. Uh, so you can bring an expertise to bear on the case. I've had a training in a lot of these areas. Would I be, could I testify as an expert in court? No. But do I have an expertise that helps me in these cases? Absolutely. And then the education, you know, in the training and all these courses that I have taken, doing research in, in the area of homicide, you read hundreds and hundreds of cases. Uh, and then the experiential value of working these kinds of cases, not only my cases, but um, all of your uh, colleagues' cases sitting in on a serial murder case of 50 individuals, uh, young males down in Louisiana, or, uh, you know, 12 in another case, not all my cases, but sitting in a, in a consultation. So you have a lot of experience working these cases. And then you bring that to bear on the cases that you have. And you need to stand in both the victim's shoes, because you have to understand how the victim got into this position. And why the offender is making these choices and selecting this person and either taking a lot of risk or trying to minimize risk. Um, you know, what, what is the decision process? And then, you know, what is the weapon use process? What is the, what is the injury process? Um, and what is the postmortem activity process? You know, what, what else is going on here? And all of these things have, some meaning to each other um, in the constellation of, of the totality of the circumstances. So look, you look at everything as, um, you know, as it's as a whole, like, I don't pull a piece out, a very unusual piece and go, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't really mean anything by itself. It only means something within the context mm. of the MO or the ritualized behavior. Um, so, so you, you need to understand it that way. And that's the way that I think about it. And also by the time we're getting called in and on many cases, they're cold. Right. And this is sort of like the last, last ask. And so I feel a lot of burden mm. to be, to do justice for the victims and their families, you know, and give render you know, the most truthful assessment that I can give. And I can't do that if I get 
allow myself to get sucked in to an emotional aspect of the case, as horrible as the case might be, I need to stay, uh, remain distant. Right. And I think that is the hallmark of a good profiler is being able to do that and not become biased, not become um, emotionally overcome with, you know, the brutality that you're dealing with and try to really assist the agency um, and, you know, bring justice to the victims and to their families. And that's the way I've always looked at it uh, for, for me and right. always recognizing the limitations of what I can do. Right. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. And I, like, like not getting confirmation bias, not getting emotional, looking at it strictly from kind of like a high level overview of everything else, the data that you have. And especially if it's a cold case, I mean, there's lots of biases and right. confirmation is a, is a big one, but tunnel vision. Tunnel, yeah, yeah. I see that a lot in, in investigations. I've worked so many cases where the investigators are sh just sure they know who did this. Right. And, and they've spent years of their life working this case right. in that direction. Can you imagine how difficult it is when you look at a case and you go, you're looking at the wrong guy. Yeah, He's over here, not right here. You know, yeah, you, yep. this, you, then you're looking at the wrong people or right. this is not, this is not how I assess it. And here's why, you know, and it's hard to say, nobody wants to go, you know what? I just wasted two years of my life doing this, taking this case in the wrong, wrong direction. Nobody wants to say, you know, I should have seen that. Right. They get very protective about their cases. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they, you know, they're heavily invested in it. I'm not invested in it. Right. I come in and I don't neutral. have connection here. I'm neutral. I said, I don't have a dog in the fight here. I'm just here to assess all the stuff that you have and tell you what I think you know, and try to, to do the best thing. Sometimes it's, uh, I did this case in Wales. It was a mass murder case. It was a mom, uh, her mother and, uh, the woman's two little girls. Mm. And it was, I don't remember the year I did it. It was probably 15 years ago or so, but, um, it was at the time, it was the worst mass murder in Wales in 25 years. It was horrific. It wow. was really bad. Really brutal. And yeah. the, the investigation had been working on this case for a year. They had a 75 man task force working this thing. And they asked, you know, they weren't getting anywhere on this thing. They asked if they could come over and present it. So they did. They presented it over two days to about four of us. Um, and, uh, we laid out what we thought was going on here. At the end, they told us about these suspects that they had. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally, I mean, my jaw about hit the, hit the floor. Um, I'm like, I know. And I talked to my colleagues. I'm like, that's okay. This is not three people. This is a single, single offender. And your offender is much younger than these, these three or people you're looking at. Well, they went back and arrested. They thanked us. See what they were. I think what they were hoping which is what happens in a lot of cases is that we would confirm for them that what they were doing, we agreed with. Right. And in fact, we did the exact opposite. We said, these are not your offenders. And they basically thanked us and left. And then they went back 
to Wales and they arrested these three individuals. They held them for like 96 hours, they released them. And then a year later, they ended up arresting a single male, much younger, who was the offender in the case. And, um, you know, it, sometimes it just works out that way where they're not looking, they're not looking for the truth, right? They're looking for affirmation yes. from us that you guys are on the right path. You guys have got it, right? Yep. That's not what we had. Right. And I've had that in a number of cases. And I sometimes the agencies and the detectives, especially, get really upset. Oh, I can imagine. But I, I mean, my job is not to make you happy. My job is not to um, to confirm mm -hmm. what you're thinking. My job is to tell you what I think the truth is. Now, I could be wrong. Right. Right. But the, in when I'm assessing this case, this is how I look at this. Right. This is the truth for me. And it isn't just like, this is my opinion. I always support this because I typically will write a report and I will support this information in, you know, if I see staging behavior or undoing behavior or depersonalization or right. ritualized behavior data or posing yeah. or displaying, what is all of that? What, how is it different from everything else? Why is it at this crime scene? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? And, and and I will walk and I've testified in big cases here in the United States as an expert witness testifying about this kind of stuff. This crime scene was staged. This is depersonalization. This is undoing behavior. And this is what it means. And this is what it means in terms of your suspect. Right. Of how to identify that type of person or who is doing it. And then, like you said, most times they have, they might have a handful of people that do fit that, that they're not even looking at. Right. A lot of the cases that I testify in, the suspect is already in custody, right? So I'm not, and I don't interview them. I'm looking at crime scene behavior. So my job is to assess the dynamics of the crime. And my job is not to say, yes, I looked at this whole case and yes, the guy sitting over there is the guy that did it. Right. And so that's not my role. That's the jury's role. Mm. That's the judge's role. My role is I don't ever identify anybody. My role is to talk about behavior and what it means. Mm. And then the prosecutor or the defense attorney takes that information and goes, yeah, and all of this put together points to him or all of this put together doesn't point to my client. Right. 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 It's up to the jury to make that decision. It's not my, not my decision. And that is actually what they call profiling in in uh, criminal cases and it's uh, it, it's not allowed in the courts why you, because you can't because you you can't take the over the purview of the jury or the judge right you can't prove it like that is the exact person who did it yeah i'm, right. I'm not that's not my role right right my role is to tell you what my assessment is and what does this behavior mean wow that's what it means does it have anything to do with the, the defendant over there? I don't have any idea. Maybe, I don't maybe know not. who the defendant is. Okay. I don't even know this person. Wow. Sometimes I go in and testify as an expert. I've never even seen the defendant. That's the first time I've ever seen the person. Wow. Right? My job, that's not my job. That's the prosecutor's job. Then to take that information, because I only have one piece of the case. Mm. You know, cases are complex. They have lots of information I never hear about mm. that, that takes investigation that takes place later. 
And sometimes after, if there's a conviction, um, I might hear about it. You know, they might tell me, oh yeah, we found this letter in the trash, right? That, that, like I never knew about it, right? Because it didn't, didn't pertain to my, you know, the behavioral my, side of things. Yeah, I didn't, it didn't pertain to the crime scene for right. me, right? So um, there's no need to tell me about it because it might just bias me, right? Right, right. So they have this information. I'm, I'm giving them this assessment, but, but there's lots of pieces to the case. You know, the case might take uh, three, four weeks, mm. right? I come in for a day, right? Do my, my thing. And then I leave. Right. Wow. And then I hear about it later. So then it's the prosecutor's job to take that information, you know, and, right. but, but that's, you know, you can't, you can't do that kind of uh, you can't, and the judge judges wouldn't allow it anyway. Right. Uh, that kind of testimony in the court would yeah. be, yeah, you'd be kicked off the stand. Yeah, that would work. That's, that's fascinating stuff, man. I, I really appreciate you, you coming by, where can people kind of find you, you know, social media, your website and stuff like that. Well, let's see, what is it? Th 13th uh, tomorrow. I have a show, not a, is a show on Chris Watts. He was a family annihilator in Colorado. Yes. Um, that's on TV television uh, tomorrow. I think it airs. It's just on, so you can you can watch it anytime. What's it called? Because uh, I want to watch it. I'm fascinated. I think it's that. the. I think it's. I think it's called the Chris Watts story. It's called uh, Human Monster, or okay. um, I, I don't. I don't recall. I'll find but it. It's also it's the Chris Watts and it, a story. Uh, it's I think it's coming out tomorrow, the 14th. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I, I do a lot of different uh, TV shows. I have a website, um, Forensic Behavioral Services International, uh, FBSinternational.com, but it's really mostly for work stuff, mm -hmm. um, for attorneys when I you know, do expert testimony work. Um, there's a lot of clips. I had a TV show in 2011 called Killer Instinct, NBC produced. I did uh, 13 episodes. Uh, of cases, of cases that I had, a lot of the of the really interesting cases that I've done, um, the you know Bakersfield mass murder case, the uh, Spokane serial murder case, they're all in there. Um, and then I did a couple seasons um, in Sweden of cold case homicide shows, and two seasons in Denmark of cold case. Well, one season of cold case homicide and one season of equivocal death cases. <laughs> which are, are fascinating. I love doing equivocal death cases, uh, almost sometimes more difficult than doing a homicide case. Right. right. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, you can find me on the web. If, if you Google me, I've got this clips and stuff. We have the technology there, now. We can find you. Yes, the technology's <laughs> out there. Good they caught up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, right. It's all out there. Never, never used to be out there. Not, not in the golden age. Right. No, right, right. That's awesome. Man. Well, Hey, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on. I really appreciate it. I always wanted to talk to an actual profiler that understands these cases and I'm glad I got to speak with you. So I really appreciate the time. You bet, Corey. My pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Awesome. Well, that's another and Thanks to your audience for listening. Absolutely. No, yeah, they're going to be pumped. Like they love this shit, honestly. Like they're, they're weirdos just like me. So they're going to really <laughs> like diving into the mind. of. Well, like, I think, I think it, you know, it's television skews so bad the yes. way that people look at, you know, what we can actually do and what we can't do Yes. both behaviorally and forensically. Um, so I think it's just, you know, this is sort of a reality check for people 
Um, yeah, in true crime shows, you get some of this, you get experts that talk about things, but um, there's a lot of misunderstanding and uh, misinformation about profilers, you know, and you had Silence of the Lambs and, yeah. and uh, you know, which really started this whole thing in terms of profiling and FBI profilers. Right. Um, yeah, but then you had Red Dragon, which actually I thought was which came, which was actually the prequel book. Yeah, that's like the third one, but it was the prequel. Really, yeah. that was really good. It didn't get much uh, play, but mm -mm. the first opening scene is amazing. Yeah, yeah. that movie, I, I like the movie. Yeah, yeah. the movie I was great. Yeah, I didn't read the books. I'm not a big books were The books were really good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the, the movie was was really good. Um, so anyway, yeah, um, just help people to understand what we do. Right. And uh, the limitations of what we do right. is important to understand. Yeah. I, I think that's another part is like, it's, it's like I said earlier, it's like, oh, well, this is like the end all be all. It's like, well, you, you're, you have one specific job and if you can do it great, if you can't, you can't help them. Like you said, like a drive-by shooting, no FBI profiler is going to profile a drive-by shooting. Like that's just yeah. not going to work. So not, yeah, just too, not enough information. No. And I think one pe people should also understand that, you know, we don't insert ourselves into homicide investigations. It's not like, uh, you know, a lot of the movies where the, you see the FBI and every time I see this, I like, I just cover my eyes and, you know, just cringe. Um, we don't just, you know, strut into an yeah. investigation go, Hey, we're the FBI. We're taking over. I mean, it's, it's just never happens. Um, we are asked we, we, uh, we have to be invited into an investigation. An agency has to make a request of the FBI to have the profilers come in. So it is, um, you know, that's the vast majority of our cases are cases where we, you know, we get invited in by the agency. So, right. That's awesome. That's, I didn't know that. I thought it was, you guys stroll in on your G5 and just... yeah, that's it. Just land and say, we're taking over. <laughs> no, no, no. Sounds good. And you know, it great works great in a Bruce Willis movie. It does, but it's yeah, not real. Wear your dark suit and sunglasses and yeah. push your way through the crowd and tell everybody you're taking over. <laughs> this is our and when I see that, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I know. this I know. is why cops have a bad yeah. idea bad you know feeling when the fbi come into an investigation they think they're there to take over and yeah you know it's just a tool in the toolbox tool in the toolbox i love it well thanks again mark i appreciate it okay Corey. that's thanks. another episode of the e4x was a podcast i'll see you next time peace out and right now they're doing a buy one get one free plus free shipping the 30-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty on top of that you my friends will get 10 percent off of any product, of any purchase on their website by using Explicit10. Use the code Explicit10 and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase from bravoconcealment.com.